Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today's guest is Carl Honoré, a man who has been called the godfather of the slow movement. For almost two decades, he's been writing, talking and supporting people to slow down and move against the tide of our fast-paced consumerist world. Carl is an award-winning writer, a best-selling author, a TED speaker and a broadcaster. But what his work shows is that when you tap into something the world really needs and stick to your guns, a movement will build. And he's now turning his disruptive thinking to a new topic, ageism. His latest book, Boulder, unravels the unhelpful stereotypes we have about ageing and proves that it doesn't have to be that way. With humility and some brilliant storytelling, Carl is an expert at dismantling norms and supporting people to change their behaviour. A pirate I am very pleased to know now. I'm again without Sam today on the podcast, as this week he kicks off the Uncertainty Experts programme. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. We actually have met before, and there's absolutely no way that you would remember this, but many years ago, I saw you talk at the RSA, where I was then working, and I saw your talk on slow and I thought it was brilliant. And then I had the opportunity to take you on a small tour of RSA House. I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So was that after the, was that after the event that we did the tour or yes, it was because, yeah, because I became a, a member for a while. That's it. Yeah. Yes, I do remember. Yeah. Yeah. Usually we would invite a speaker to become a member and it was quite exciting for me as a junior staff member at the time when one of the actual speakers is interested in joining. So yeah, that was great for me. All right. And I read your book because it was then in the library and I've yeah pretty much followed your work ever since. Mm. Obviously, now that I'm running Be More Pirate, which is all about challenging the status quo, it occurred to me that you are, in fact, a professional challenger of the status quo. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to cover today, you know, how you got from slow, which you're well known for, to the new book, Boulder. But starting off with the slow movement, which is all about how to slow down in a world that is addicted to speed and how you can make that your superpower, which is a concept I really like because it speaks to the pirate ethos about 
walking in the opposite direction to everybody else and how that can actually be something to harness. So how did you initially decide that slowing down was going to be your calling? Well, when people get stuck in fast forward, as many of us do, it often takes a shock to the system or a wake up call to make you realize that you've forgotten how to put on the brakes, that you're racing through your life instead of living it, and that this is doing you all kinds of harm. And I think for a lot of people, that wake up call takes the form of an illness. The body one day says, no, we're not doing this anymore. And you have a burnout or you just can't get out of bed one morning. I had a very different kind of wake up call, which was it was a little bit milder, but it shook me to the core in a similar sort of way. And it was this, when I started reading bedtime stories to my son, I found that I just couldn't slow down. So I'd go into his room at the end of the day and speed read Snow White. Yeah. So I'd be skipping lines, <laughs> paragraphs. I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn, which any parent who's listening will recognize you. Know, you're, you're in such a hurry. You're trying to sneak three or four pages past these kids, but you know they never fall for it, right? They know the stories inside out. So my son would always say, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story tonight? You know, what, what happened to Grumpy? And this really quite lamentable state of affairs went on for some time until I heard myself thinking of buying a book. I'd heard about this book called The One Minute Bedtime Story, right? So Snow White <laughs> in 60 seconds. And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, hallelujah, that is a great idea. I need that book now, Amazon drone delivery, right? But my second thought was really quite different. I thought, whoa, it was a real light bulb over the head moment. I thought, whoa, am I really such a hurry? Am I really prepared to fob off my little boy with a soundbite instead of a story at the end of the day? And it was one of those moments of genuinely searing epiphany. It was like an out-of-body experience. You suddenly, like I could suddenly see myself in sharp relief from the side. And what I saw there was just ugly and unedifying. And I thought, this is not living. This is just hurrying. And so that was the starting point for me when I really hit rock bottom. And I set off around the world as a journalist to try and understand not only my own addiction to speed, but the bigger picture. And that was kind of the germ of the whole slow movement and work and everything I've done sort of since then. That really chimes because we would also say that in our movement, people tend to have that catalyst or epiphany moment of, wow, essentially I'm on automatic in some way. Yeah, I've been conditioned by the world around me and I haven't stopped to think for myself. And that happens in all kinds of different ways, you know, as you say, sometimes much more serious breakdowns and illnesses and things, but it can be those reactions of a loved one or something like that. And a three thread between your work and your exploration of what it means to slow down and also a three thread to your work now on aging and ageism, which we'll get to later, is the fact that you travel the world trying to explore the issue in its entirety and lots of different places have different approaches to speed. So I'd love to hear the stories of people's approaches to either trying to slow down or just the culture in general, in that there's so much richness about what we can learn. So are there any particular cultures or geographies that really helped you to understand how to approach behavior change when it comes to slowing down? I went into the whole project of writing the first book in Praise of Slow expecting, maybe even hoping to come out the other end with a, an international league table of nations of slow, right? So I could sort of say, hey, this is the top country and here are the top five, and this is the lessons we can pull out from the top seven. But I found it a much more blurry and mixed up picture than that. Italy, for instance, we think of la dolce vita, right? And we think of Italians with that wonderful culture of the table and slow food, the slow movement, slow food mode, of course, started, no surprise, I don't think, in Italy. So the art of eating well, eating slowly, being present, breaking bread together, all that, the Italians are are masters of that. You know, the whole passeggiata, the evening stroll, there's a kind of slowness about Italy, which makes it a glorious place to go on vacation, doesn't it? But the flip side is that if you've ever driven on an Italian highway, 
you know that the Italians are also infected by the virus of hurry, right? <laughs> and if you also look at the uh, mobile phone usage, I think Italians have the highest number, you know, spend the most, most time looking at the, or interacting socially online. So it seemed to me as I got deeper into the research that everywhere I looked was a mixed picture that you could turn to, say, Far Eastern cultures, like the Pacific Rim, think of sort of Japan and China, which have got wonderfully soothing traditions of people doing Tai Chi in public parks and tea ceremonies and the whole meditation thing that we've imported in the West under the sobriquet of mindfulness. All those things have deep roots in that part of the world. And yet, you know, those are countries, especially China at the moment, which are, you know, monstrous engines of speed in so many other ways, you know, sort of wild, uncontrolled consumerism, growth on an epic scale, people working all hours of the day. So I just feel like it was a mixed picture. So the way I came away at the end of it was thinking, rather than trying to put one country on a pedestal or demonize other countries, was just to take a kind of magpie approach to the smorgasbord and just kind of cast the net around the world and say, look, here in this country, say Nordic countries, you could put Germany, the Netherlands in there, tend to work fewer hours than we do in the Anglo-Saxon world and certainly than they do in Latin Mediterranean worlds, in much of the world, right? And yet they have among the highest levels of productivity and their economies rank among the most competitive and creative in the world, right? That delicious paradox that slowing down can make you more efficient, more effective, a better version of yourself at work, right? But then at the same time, I would say, let's look to the Italians to try and remember what the magic of food and, and how to eat well and how to use food, not only as a way to nourish the body, but as a balm for the soul and as glue for our families and as a way to bring ourselves together and celebrate the best of what it is to be alive and human. So I feel like you need to look around all the country and not get too blinded by the idea that one nation is, has got it all right. All of that being said, though, I'm just going to add a little <laughs> footnote at the end here. And this is something I didn't really go into in great depth in the book, is that if you go to traditional societies, which haven't been infected by the kind of virus of turbo consumerism, turbo capitalism and modernity, they have a much more healthy and I think natural and human relationship with time. And there's an old saying from I think it's in, in back in colonial days in Africa, local people would say, the European, you have the clocks, but we have the time. In those traditional societies, they have a real ancient understanding of what's important and how to use time to make the most of those important things. There's a lot to be learned, I think, from traditional societies as well. Yeah, there's definitely a resurgence of looking to those more indigenous cultures for knowledge, I think, at the moment. Climate's a good example. I'm totally. I, I was I was at a conference a few weeks ago listening to um, Tim Smith from the Eden Project talk about what he's learning from indigenous cultures and applying it. And yeah, it just felt very much that that was the direction of travel at the moment. In your research, did you find if there was a moment in time where it felt that things sort of sped up just because... I often try to pinpoint this. I feel that my peer group went through a very interesting moment in that we were the group that got Facebook at university at the moment when it was what it was designed for. And it felt like everything sped up in a moment because we suddenly had this surge of new communication methods. And that was the beginning of instant messaging and constantly being on. And that felt like the moment of real speed to me. But I don't know if in your research, you know, because it obviously does coming from capitalism as a broad umbrella, consumerist. Well, my, my, my assumption going into the, the work was that this whole virus of hurry, this speedaholic roadrunner culture was a scourge of the modern era. But actually, once you sort of scratch at the surface a little, you realize that the roots of rush and rushing go back very far. <laughs> you know, you can go back as far as ancient Greece, 
the Roman Empire, as soon as people started using sundials, measuring time, suddenly they had schedules. And as soon as they had schedules, they began to rush, right? Their time was diced up into little chunks. And as soon as you'd start doing that, then there's a pressure to maximize your time, to be as productive as possible. Time becomes money, right? That phrase that was actually uttered by Benjamin Franklin at the dawn of the industrial era has come, I think, to define the way we live every second of our lives in the early 21st century. But that idea has been lurking in the back of the human psyche all the way through. So there's always been a notion, I think, as soon as man was measuring time, he began to speed up or he had the tools to speed up and therefore the temptation and many people would give into that temptation. You could see the same thing when clocks arrived in medieval villages in Europe. Suddenly people were on the clock, right? Literally on the clock, right? And as soon as you're on the clock, you're prone to speeding up. You're prone to doing things too fast. So that was all there before. I think you could also overlay on that a kind of metaphysical idea, which is that we have always at every stage of human history and in every culture confronted the greatest deadline of all, which is death. Yeah. So somehow mortality, I think, can play in there, a feeling of time is finite and in the wrong hands and the wrong spirit, that can turn every moment into a dash to the finish line, right? Speed. But things only really got fast with the industrial era, of course. That's where things really began to ratchet up, you know, with the, the industrialization of machines allowing us to do things faster and faster and then conditioning us to expect them to be quicker and quicker. And that's only just got faster. And you've just put your finger on the more recent surge of speed, which is the infotech, you know, social media, instant messaging revolution, which is the latest crank of the acceleration lever, right? That's pushed us even further. And I think we, even before that, we were bumping up against the limits of what human beings and the planet could endure in terms of speed. I think with the social media revolution and all of the speed that's gone along with that, I think we've gone past that now very clearly which is why there's such a big backlash and which is why the slow movement is growing fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, oh, wow, just that was really interesting. That's really made me think that it's to do with what you said about if you've got the tools, you've got the temptation to speed up and it's measurement that's the problem. And the, the smaller we make the units of time, almost like the bigger the temptation is. Elon Musk, for instance, I think divides his day up into 10 minute chunks, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even just thinking of that makes me feel anxious and rushed and like time is running away from me. (laughs) Well, yeah, it does to me, although I do have, um, I think it was um, my coach uh, introduced me to a technique of trying to do something in 15 minutes. And this is really a way to ease procrastination, which I think has helped me in some respects. But yeah, if you break up your entire day like that, that is stressful. And I think you're right that the surge of communication recently, we probably already were past it. I felt that it was beyond stressful to submerge in multiple platforms. Sometimes I count the amount of message platforms I have to check on a daily basis. And there's this relationship between speed and more as well. So it's not just because there's more, we have to be faster at it all. So the relationship between overproduction. Yeah, we're trapped in a vicious circle, really, where the world is already this enormous infinite buffet of things to experience and consume and buy and do. And the natural human instinct, you know, we are creatures of scarcity in the savannah, right? We find ourselves in this world of super abundance. And what do we want to do? We want it all, right? That old phrase, having it all. But having it all is just a recipe for hurrying it all. And the more there is, <laughs> the more pressure and more temptation there is to try and have more and more. And that just turns you into a kind of headless chicken, right? Where you're just constantly racing through every moment. And then every moment becomes a multiple moment, right? So this is the cult of multitasking, the idea that 
who sits down now and watches Netflix without scrolling on their phone at the same time, right? And maybe eating. It's like people find it so hard to do just one thing at a time when in fact doing one thing at a time is the secret sauce for doing things really well, right? <laughs> for being present, bringing all of you to that act and getting the most out of it, right? And remembering it as well. Yes. Every moment is a multiple moment. That is a great little phrase to try to remember if that, that, that unfortunately has become the norm. So bearing that in mind, there's two avenues I want to go down here. The first is you must have had lots of people writing to you, talking to you about this the revolutionary potential of slowing down for an individual. And if people must have written to you and been like, this has changed my life, I imagine. Is there anything you've learned about what has worked? Because the core of our work in Be More Pirate is how do you move people from the inspiration, the great like understanding that you've gained about why we need to slow down to actual action? Because you're running against the tide of everything else around you going speed up. Yeah, I actually pretty much every day will open up my email and there'll be an email from somebody somewhere in the world saying, this has changed my life, right? Which is part <laughs> of what gets me up in the morning <laughs> and back into the fight. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways that we can all start to get off the crazy fast forward merry-go-round. I'll just give you two thoughts or two ways of approaching it. One is pilot projects, right? I think nowadays we feel like if we want to make a change in our life, it's got to be sweeping, profound and permanent, right? It's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to hold my nose. I'm going to jump. I'm in. And what that translates into, especially when you're talking about slowing down, is that people want to slow down fast. Yeah. So, so they, they sort of say, they'll say, yeah, you know, I watched your talk or I read your book or something. And I thought, yeah, I need this. So I signed up for yoga. Then I ran across the street to do some meditation. Then I hurried home to cook a slow meal for my part. You think, wait a minute, something is getting lost in the shuffle here. I always say that slowing down is a process, right? This, you're talking about undoing the habits of a lifetime for most of us. You're also talking about swing against the tide, as you've said, right? So that makes it harder. We're social animals. So it's going to take time. And there are going to be maybe two steps forward, one back, a couple steps sideways. You know, it's not going to be a kind of pure times arrow straight shot to destination slow, right? It's going to be a, a messy business. The other thing to bear in mind along those lines is that speed is a kind of addiction, right? I mean, they've actually shown that we are physically addicted to distractions, stimulations, busyness. They take away people's mobile phones and then wire them up and measure the response. It's exactly the same as when you take away heroin from a junkie, right? I mean, we are literally at chemical level of, of addiction now for many people. What does that mean? That means you're very likely to encounter withdrawal symptoms, right? You know, you're going <laughs> to slow down. You may find, oh, at first, this is a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, there's a bit of unease here. Is this quite right for me? So I always say, I come back to what I said at the start, there are pilot projects, run little projects for yourself. Say, okay, for the next week, every day I wake up in the morning, I won't look at a screen for half an hour. And every day I come home from work, when I get into the house, the home, the flat, whatever, I won't look at a screen for an hour, you know, and just try that for a week. And then have a little meeting at the end and say to yourself, well, what did that feel like? Did it help? Did it hurt? Could I do more? Could I do less? What do the people around me think about it? And that sort of thing. So tweak, you know, make that part of your routine, but in a way that works right. And, and always be alert to the fact that a habit or a ritual that works for you now in three years may not work anymore, right? Or it may need revisiting and refreshing. So always keep that kind of fluid approach to changing and always keep it in an experimental spirit. I think that's super important. The other thing is don't try to slow down alone, right? This is part of the problem now is that speed divides us from other people. Speed is selfish. We end up in a vortex of rush. All we can think about is our next item on the to-do list. This is one of the horrifying ironies 
and paradoxes of the modern world is that we're more connected electronically than ever before, but in many ways, by many yardsticks, we're more alone, right? We're, we're less connected to other people. And yet we are social creatures, right? We are animals of the social world. And so if you're going to slow down, do it with other people, right? Whether that's the people you live with in the flat, in, in your house, it, whether it's your department or your team at work, a couple of friends, you know, just come up with ideas together, you know, and, and, and try these things out together. Try slowing down together. There's a great ritual now called stacking. Do you know this thing, stacking, that young people do when they go out, they sit around the table together, everybody piles their phone up a stack in the middle, and whoever grabs the phone first to look at TikTok or send a Snapchat pays the bill for everybody else, right? <laughs> and it's just a nifty, fun way of saying, you know, we have this moment here together. We'll never have this moment again. Why spoil it by trying to be in several moments at the same time? And that's easier to do together, right? Rather than one person saying, my phone's in my pocket, I'm not going to touch it while everybody else is looking at Instagram, right? So you do those things together, it gets easier and it gets you to where you want to be with slow because there's always a danger with movements like the slow movement that people latch onto them as something self-serving and solipsistic, that it's about me. It's about finding the best version of me and living my best life and all those things we see on Instagram hashtags, right? That's part of it. But actually, that's not the end point. The end point is to reconnect us with other people. Yeah, There's a great African proverb, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that word together is at the core of what the slow revolution is about. It's about reconnecting us with ourselves first, because like Gandhi said, be the change you want to say in the world. You need to put your own house in order first, slowing down. But really, the end game is to connect you slowly with other people, because human relationships are slow. We cannot speed them up. We try to, right? But it doesn't work. You can have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but what does that mean if you don't have anyone to go walk around in the park with when you're feeling really, really low? So it's kind of that idea of slow taking you through self-improvement, which is great, but to something more connected and bigger than you. There's so much of that our audience will love. There's just hit so many points, definitely doing it together, finding your little crew or a group and recognizing that we learn and unlearn rules socially. And so the deconditioning processes, and I think also what you really touched on was there was that it feels uncomfortable, but what you're doing is just so much more revolutionary. There's so many technological platforms popping up all the time, giving us the promise that we will be more connected if we use this new silver bullet platform, not speaking of any recent things that have come out in the media, promising to connect us more. But what you're saying is actually there's something that's more uncomfortable, but more rewarding in the long term to do here as a different kind of work that we need to be doing and very much resonates with what we say around Be More Pirate, that once you get into the more uncomfortable terrain, there's treasure beyond that. So go there. But anyway, the other kind of thing I wanted to kind of touch on is less to do with the individual, although they're obviously linked, but more on the systemic kind of side of slow. So obviously there are all these different fractions of what slow can mean. Slow travel, you mentioned slow eating, slow education. I think I saw slow, so fashion being a huge one for sort of environmental. Very big at the moment. Yeah. And what have you seen working there? Are there any been, been any projects that have felt particularly revolutionary for you? I'm really interested in slow travel because I feel increasingly guilty about flying and I love travel so much. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I'm someone who travels for work. And of course, with the pandemic, that all stopped. And I think this was one of the silver linings for a lot of us in the pandemic was it was a time to pause, rethink, step back, ask those big questions. And I definitely have come out from the pandemic thinking I would like to travel again, but I want to travel differently, right? And less. 
and more slow, I think, which is something that we were seeing before the pandemic. The slow travel was gaining ground all over the place, but it's very much on the radar now. So I think we're going to see right across the culture. We were already seeing it before the pandemic, but the pandemic, I think, has given it an extra fillip, a move towards bringing this slow ethos to the party. You mentioned there slow fashion. I mean, by its very nature, you think of fashion as being fast, right? You know, it's quick turnaround. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, that feels like the kind of bailiwick of fashion, but there's a whole, you know, counterculture or countercurrent within fashion, which is slowing things down, right? Well, whether it's buying secondhand or upcycling or buying less, but buying better. So things that last, and you're hearing people right across the fashion industry, making a nod to that sort of thing or rejigging their supply chains and the way they make stuff. It's gone beyond virtue signaling on social media, right? I mean, real things are happening within the fashion world that are making a difference and will make more of a difference. If you'd said to me, there'll be a slow fashion movement, say 10 years ago, I would have said that's probably one of the hardest nuts to crack, right? The fashion industry. So that, again, for me, makes me feel considerably more optimistic about the prospects for slow, that even an area like that, which just seems by its very nature at odds with slow, would embrace it as well. You see see it as well in gaming industry. There's a whole strand of gaming, which is built around slow, right? Whether it's building slow-moving, immersive games. There are games now where you you only make one move a day or one move an hour and this sort of thing. So so people are bringing that to the table in what traditionally has been seen a very fast first-person shooter aesthetic of games. That's still there, of course, but there's also a another aesthetic right alongside it, which is much slower. So I, I think that's pretty amazing as well. And that shows that the tectonic plates really are shifting. What you notice as well, and this, we're at the beginning of this now, is that the people within, let's call it the big tech industrial complex, right? Those big companies that won't name, but we all know them and many of us use them. They're still pumping out platforms and apps that are designed to hook us for as long as possible, keep us with little dopamine squirts and adrenaline jolts to keep us constantly looking at screens. That's, that model is still there. But what's super interesting is you're seeing now apostates, right? You're seeing people within that model, whether it's whistleblowers from you know company X, or, and I do a lot of work myself in Silicon Valley, right? Giving talks and workshops in schools and for companies. And it's super interesting behind the scenes, what's going on in those companies that those people are not showering their own kids with iPads and phones. They're holding them back. They're sending them to schools that don't have screens in the classroom. They're shutting off screens in the home. You know, they're they're thinking wisely, deeply, even mindfully about how to use technology. There's a tension there in, in what's going on on the outside and the inside, but I think it's a tension that points in the right direction because that center cannot hold. It will break. And the whole move towards creating a slow tech, there is a slow tech movement, which is kind of ties into this will only gather steam as those people get more vocal, leave those companies, set up other companies. So I I see real change coming in a way that's pretty hopeful, I think. That has made me feel hopeful, actually. That really has. That if innovation just tips in the right direction, it will spiral quickly because you're right. They will go, oh, there's a market here for slow because people are starting to recognize. And I do think what you're doing, spreading the awareness of the impact and the potential for something different will, this is a lot about the kind of mythologies and narratives we create in society about what's good and bad. And and I was thinking about this as I was actually reading Boulder, your new book, because it's lots of stories of people and the way that they are challenging the stereotypes of aging. And it's always struck me that the more we tell stories about people who buck the status quo in some way or shape or form, the more those stories are likely to seep through society and pervade and become the new myth 
about who we are and how we behave. I think that the potential for that with this is huge, especially if you've got some really big companies on your side, or you just need one or two big brands to kind of lead the way. To break cover. Yeah. And we're seeing it more and more. You know, the more pirates you see, the easier it becomes for you to become a pirate, right? To channel your inner pirate. (laughs) And and I think- when it comes to something like like with my new work, Boulder, talking about aging and attitudes to aging and so on, I'm going to fall on the side of social media here because I think social media is a very powerful ally in the battle for redefining aging for the 21st century and taking down the cult of youth and the ageist industrial complex. Because obviously, there are corners, many corners, much of social media is about promoting a an absurd version of, of youthful beauty, especially for, for women. But there's also a massive sweep of social media that's completely the opposite, right? It's every day, millions of people around the world are uploading photos and videos to social media showing their version of being 30-something, 40-something, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100-something, right? And guess what? Those versions look very different from the grim, doer, downbeat narrative that we tell ourselves about aging, which is that from the age of whatever, 30, 35, 40, it's all downhill, right? Everything gets worse. It's a, it's a game of loss, decline, skidding downhill towards dementia, depression, poverty, loss of everything. When in fact, that's utterly untrue. I mean, obviously we lose some things along the way, but many things as we grow older stay the same and, and many actually get better. And these people with these posts that are going up all the time, creating this wallpaper that tells us a different story about aging is hugely powerful because it becomes so much easier for us when we see those people annihilating the ageist stereotypes, the cult of youth tropes, comes so much easier for the rest of us to do the same, to think, to ignore that little voice that says, I'm too old for this. This is not age appropriate, right? Or I'm too young for this, right? Because young people suffer from ageism too. The more people we see, thanks to social media, whether it's skydiving in their hundreds or launching a company at 21 or you know falling in love at 63, that just opens the door for the rest of us to think, you know what? Maybe me too. Me too in a good way. <laughs> yeah. In a good way. Absolutely. <laughs> Not hashtag, just me and two, two words. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that too. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it was really interesting. At the beginning of the book, you really lay out a lot of those stereotypes around aging. When you are bombarded with them all at once, I was like, wow, we really do have some very negative stories around aging looking at them side by side. And I think there was a story also in the chapter on work about a, a bus driver in Thailand who I think raised the age at which you could be a bus driver and recognising that people are actually sort of calmer in their older age. And that's a key quality for a bus driver navigating incredibly busy roads. And I thought that was a great example. And I thought, wow, my God, my immediate thought is grumpy old man. <laughs> that is definitely a stereotype I hold. That is so true. Yeah. So I was like, oh, so that's not actually true at all. That I don't know. Yeah. But where where do these stereotypes come from? Did you find out anything about the origin of them? One of the great myths is that in the past, there was some sort of golden age for being older and everybody venerated and admired old people and aspired to be old because that was where all the power was. And of course, the people had more power. And, and of course, I'm just talking wildly genera- generalizing here across cultures. But again, it was a mixed bag, right? So at the same time as people at the top of the pyramid age-wise would have wielded more power, had more property, had more kudos in the culture. At the same time, they could also be the target of merciless ridicule, right? By younger people. You know, think of the plays of Plautus and, you know, in ancient Greece and Aristophanes and so on. So this idea that in the past somehow it was great to grow old, in many ways it wasn't. If it ever was, that would be for a very narrow percentage of the population, right? The elite. 
Everyone else had a pretty rubbish time in many ways. This is actually today the best time in human history to grow older, right? In so many ways, right? From nutrition, we're living better than ever before. The trouble is that culture hasn't kept pace with that. So we've carried on with this grim idea of aging, which I think it's always slightly been there, but the modern era really ratcheted it up. So the industrial revolution put a lot of emphasis on on novelty, on new, on sort of youth, on the youthful vigor in factories. I mean, that was a very important thing at work, of course, to be strong and young. And then the whole way of consumerism, the same. We came, you know, teenagers got invented, the whole kind of culture, young youth culture, that sort of fed into it as well. There's a whole kind of intersection concatenation of many factors going on here. But we've ended up really, it seems to me, in the, in the late 20th century with this absolutely stifling idea of growing over where, where we're strangling ourselves with this notion that aging is curse or a punishment or a form of failure or even a disease, right? When in fact, it's the most natural thing that can happen to you. It happens to all of us, right? If you embrace it, it can actually be pretty wonderful. And there's so many things that just blew me away in my research for this book. I mean, one of them was that if you embrace the cult of youth. If you denigrate aging and worship youth, you age less well, right? You know, you're more likely to suffer cognitive and physical decline, to get dementia, and even to die up to seven and a half years younger, right? So that makes ageism the ultimate act of self-harm, right? You know, you're doing, <laughs> we're doing ourselves harm by buying in to the cult of youth. Another one that really jumped out, you mentioned it there, was the idea of people being grumpy when they get older. I had totally the same idea, but in fact, science tells us that that's not true. Human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve, which means we start pretty high up in childhood, fall steadily to middle age where we bottom out and we bounce back up again, right? Which is why in most countries, the adults that report the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness are the over 55s, right? I mean, Pete Townsend from The Who back in the 70s or whatever, he wrote in that song, My Generation, he wrote one of the most ageist lines in the pop music canon, hope I die before I grow old, right? When Pete Townsend hit his 60s, he said, you know what? Turns out I'm a lot happier now than I was back then when I wrote that line, which is a reminder of the folly of worshipping youth. Again, you don't want to replace the cult of youth with the cult of the codger. Every age can be wonderful. Every age has its pros and cons. It's about embracing whatever age you are without shrinking from the future and pining for the past, right? Embracing the present, which comes back to slow in a way, isn't it? It's about being in the here and now fully. And that ties into the work I've done with Slow. It fits very snugly into the way everybody's rethinking aging now. Yeah. And then there is the parallel with the two projects that is time. It's all about time and our perceptions of it. But what's something you just said then really struck me. And I'm just, it's gone out of my head. <laughs> so, as long as you don't say senior moment, then I'll just sit here and let <laughs> No, I know. I saw that you've written that. I was like, oh yeah, that, that's a one, isn't it? See, having a senior moment. The Pete Townsend quote. I would interpret that quote to be, I hope I die before I grow old with the fear of mortality, that there's a mindset that comes with being old for some people, or it's not. And it's not just, again, to say that having a youthful mindset is better. That's an interesting idea. What would a youthful mindset be? If there is such a thing, is there not a danger that that is a kind of ageist assumption in itself that only young people would have a certain kind of mindset? Exactly. And I think what was also really interesting in your research, you said this is the best time to be old now in this moment and the idea that it could be better to be older or younger in different periods of time. The, your research showed that actually younger people aren't necessarily more entrepreneurial, for example, because of the moment that perhaps millennials grew up into the recession, more difficult housing market, that taking risks for people in their 20s and 30s 
is perhaps more difficult than it is for people in their 50s and 60s. And that, that idea that you have to be young to be entrepreneurial is a bit of a myth. Is it about young and old or is it about the moment you're in sometimes about what is a better quality of life? The word old is one that I tend to eschew, right? I talk about younger and older because I feel like we're all on a continuum. Wherever you are, you're always moving through that glorious, unknowable, mysterious arc of life, right? And you don't know when the end is going to come. When people talk about old, or if I find myself boxed into using the term old, I think of it as a feeling of the kind of antechamber of death sense of you're just waiting for the end. You've kind of given up. It has those associations a little bit in my mind, because language is so important when it comes to shaping how we feel about ourselves and how we move through the world. And in many ways, it can shape how we behave. So I tend to stay away from the word old and talk about older. But just coming back to your idea there about the mindset, I think it is utterly that. And in some ways, I think that's the, the message of my book, Boulder, is that you know we're moving into an era now, and hallelujah to this, right? Where chronological age is losing its power to limit and define us. So what matters now and what will matter more and more in the future is not the date you were born, but the choices you make. So what will matter and what will define you are things like the food you cook for the people you love, the art that moves you to tears, the music that gets you up on the dance floor, the politics you espouse, the work you do, the places you travel. That's what's going to define you. And that's something you can choose to draw that portrait or write that story in any way at any age, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're late 20s, late 30s, late 90s, right? The idea, my idea, I suppose if you were thinking about a bolder filter is say you arrive at wherever you are, look around, look at your circumstances, look at your physical, mental state and say, what can I do with this that lights me up. And that, I guess, would be the way I would suggest approaching things. And just a little data point here to ram home what I'm saying about chronological age, meaning less and less. Amazon and Netflix, for instance, no longer track their users by age because they've realized it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. What your age is does not determine whether you like succession or strictly come dancing, right? <laughs> what matters is the person you are, right? The choices you make and the inclinations you have and your upbringing and all those things. And in fact, they've done a lot of research that shows that there's much more variety within generational cohorts. So say baby boomers, right? Between one baby boomer and another, then between, you know, necessary millennials and, and boomers or whatever. So for that reason, I tend not to use, I've just used them now because I'm echoing something you said before, but I don't use those generational labels because again, for me, they feel like here's a basket. Everyone born in this era belongs in this basket. And I, I feel like from that point, and I'm, I say you, I don't mean you personally, this is what everybody does, right? It's shorthand. It's easy for journalists. And it's fun to say, oh, I'm a millennial. She's a millennial. Let's call the whole thing off, all that kind of thing. But actually, I do think it can paint us into a corner where we just assume that everybody in that age cohort shares a huge swathe of opinions, circumstances, talents, inclinations. And that's just patently and manifestly untrue. So I personally stay away from terms like that. In the same way as I was joking earlier about senior moment, I think it's super important for us, if wherever possible, just to, not to use expressions over the hill, feeling my age, showing my age, wrong side of 40, all, all these phrases that often we say them tongue in cheek, oh, yes. but every yes. time we say them, we're reinforcing this awful myth and lie that aging is all about decline. So I never want to say, let's have some language police going around telling everyone, what, no, I don't want that. But just a gentle reminder to think about the language you use, because it is important. It's important to how you feel about your age. And it's important to the people around you when they hear you using phrases like that as well. 
we talked about language quite a lot on the podcast last week in a totally different context. And I always say to people, like, if you want to start being more pirate, changing your language to challenge the status quo is one of the easiest kind of starting points, the easiest rules you can break. And we've got a whole kind of crew in the US, actually, who do loads of work on language and how language frames your stories and getting people to change their stories because of it. So that will totally resonate. I did see someone on Twitter actually pick you up on challenging the word retirement. As oh, a, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was good because she was sort of saying, I actually want the word retirement. I want to claim that word because I've worked really hard. I feel at this point in my life, I deserve to do nothing. But I thought that kind of actually emphasised your point, which is you get to choose. You can choose it or you cannot choose it. Exactly. Yeah, I was trying gently to make that point back to her, which was, <laughs> which was just that. Yeah, which is the whole point is that what I'm challenging when I say, the term retirement it needs to be retired. I'm talking about the traditional version of retirement where, you know, the old three-stage life path where life is sliced into three chapters, learning, earning, resting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah perhaps made sense for a little while, you know, from the mid-19th century, the mid-20th, but a, a time of long lives, it just doesn't make sense anymore. And most people don't want that, right? They want to be learning throughout their lives. They want to be earning at different times, volunteering, not just in the retirement late years, but, you know, so having something much more fluid. And so the idea that you have a kind of hard stop at 65 or 67 or wherever, and suddenly you're not, you just, everything stops and it's golf and pina coladas or, what, or whatever you, whatever measure activity you, that floats yeah. your boat. That may well be great for a lot of people. And, and I would never say, don't do that if it's the right thing for you. But I think for many people, it's not the right thing. It clearly isn't because people are choosing. Some people from economic need, but millions more, no, because they want to feel like there's something to get up for in the morning that goes beyond leisure. You know, I'm going to be careful here because I, 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 again, because there's, again, it's language, right? I, you know, I was, I was partly being tongue in cheek by saying we need to retire the idea of retirement because I do think that certainly in those later decades, most of us will want at the very least to work less, right? Moving from five day, maybe to a four day, then three day as you move through into your whatever, 60s, 70s, maybe it's going to be one day a week or two or maybe none or maybe volunteer work or something. I guess what I was trying to do was just lob a little hand grenade into the idea of traditional retirement. And anytime you lob a hand grenade, you know, someone's going to get hit by some shrapnel and <laughs> there's going to be some blowback. You absolutely have to lob that grenade and see what comes up. And then you learn something from how people respond to that. But I, I do think this is really important because it is opening up a conversation about work and the future of work, which is obviously very much a topical moment post-COVID. What will future of work look like? And I was thinking, you know, reading Boulder that, wow, why don't we not have this ridiculous three parts to life where you have this huge chunk in the middle where you have to work as hard as you possibly can and do all the fast stuff. Why wouldn't you suggest having strategic sabbaticals or breaks, you know, for a few months at a time where you go off and you do something different and that you don't imagine that people lose all their skills and knowledge in that small period that they're not working. And then there's a huge chunk of time at the end where you absolutely have to do nothing. I mean, that probably, again, like in the way that we organise our days, or we've organised our days in the wrong way, we've probably organised our entire structure of life in the wrong way. And yeah, I'd love to see people picking that up and running with it and challenging it. I think that many of them already are. I mean, there's all kinds of movements and people just doing it individually and companies. You just mentioned those long sabbaticals. That's becoming a more and more common thing in the corporate world to say, you know what, go off for three months and come back refreshed with a different spin on things, you know, fired up. It just really just makes no sense in it, especially in a world where most of us are going to get into our 80s, that we have this crazy three-act approach to life. It just, it doesn't. Um, 
and 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 it, it it is I think it is starting to break up and and the pandemic has taken a real sledgehammer to it because people have come back it forced us or you could say helped us in both cases for some people to ask ourselves what was really important you know what were our real priorities and I think for a lot of people it became clear that work was just occupying way too much <laughs> of their time bandwidth energy love spirit right and so which is why you've got so many people now refusing to go back to work right and all these jobs on you know people saying <laughs> I, want, I i do want to go back but i want to go back in a different way or there has to be a new way because what we had before was not right it, it wasn't adding up it wasn't delivering what life can deliver and so we're in this extraordinary moment it's really hard to know i i feel it's so funny i'm, I'm getting leaned on all the time to write a book about <laughs> what does covid mean what it, I just feel like we're still in it. You know, I feel like I'm pressed up against these seismic changes and it feels wild, arrogant and sort of folly to try and be sure what it's going to mean. But I do think we won't go back. We won't rubber band back to what we had before because too many people have had too much of a taste now of what I would describe as a slow, <laughs> you know, of slow. And they're going to want to redesign their lives thereafter. Yeah, completely. And I think the thing that I would use as a North Star for the big shift in work would be to get more people to recognize that your energy is a more important currency than units of time. And so whatever we're doing, we've got to reorientate with that in mind. One sort of final question I want to ask, and you might dismiss the question, you might not have an answer to it, especially considering what you've said about taking things slow and appreciating the moment and the journey. In terms of the work that you're doing and, you know, galvanizing other people to take on board your research and your approach is there anything you'd like to see happen at a big scale level, like a maybe, I don't know, a big social shift that you'd like to see as a result of doing all this? You know, it's great to get the individual stories day to day, but something you go, right, we're really getting somewhere. Oh, gosh, I probably have a pretty long laundry list <laughs> there. But you know what I might put at the top of it? And this is something I do a, a lot of work on is children, right? I think that's where all of this starts and it's where all of it's going to end <laughs> is getting things right and just for the next generation. And I think, again, that's the pandemic has shone a pretty cruel light on the haves and the have-nots, especially where children are concerned. And so if I could just wave a magic wand and conjure up a colossal social shift, it would be to create a world where every child is given everything they need to be the best they can be. You know, So that's education, that's housing, that's safe neighborhoods, that's strong social communities, that's a good diet, all those things. I mean, I'm asking for a lot there in one thing, but but I suppose it, it it's it's children, right? That's where my my hopes lie and that's where I think the dreams will take off. So let's get this right as quickly as possible. Thank you so much, Carl. This has been really brilliant. Loved hearing everything you have to say about the new work, everything that's built up to that with slow Absolutely, everyone should go and read your books because they're really uplifting. I think that's something that came across. Sometimes you can read books that position ways in which we can change society or should you change society that make you feel a little bit depressed at the end. And I just think yours are so. I've really, read books like that. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm sure, yeah. 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 Um, there's just human stories. Yeah, I really encourage everyone to go and read them. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. You've given me lots of food for thought myself, which is always a good sign. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, 
then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.